book of Psalms is located about halfway in the middle of your Bible. So, This morning we're going to be continuing in our series of the Songs of Ascents. So we're going to be looking at our next two songs, Psalms, Psalm 128 and Psalm 129. Now, a good father loves to reward his children. As Titus's dad, I get a sense of joy when he obeys me, and my joy becomes even more full when I get to give him good things as a result. I love getting to see his little face light up with glee. If you ever met Titus, you know he wears his emotions on his face. I love to see him get excited. I enjoy, I, I love the joyful bear hugs that he gives in return. I love the way I see him, he shakes with excitement and jumps up and down and shrieks even though that can be really loud. I love the way that our relationship grows deeper and stronger as he learns to trust me, and I learn that I can trust him. It makes my heart glad as a father. God is a good, good father, a better father than I can ever hope to be. And he delights as such in pouring out the riches of his kindness on his children. It makes God's heart glad to meet the needs of his people. His commands are always good, and he rewards obedience because it pleases him to do so. Now there's a big, big difference between the sort of favor that a business shows an employee and the way that a father or a parent rewards their children. Employee of the month is a title that is earned. Your rank in a business can be qualified. You get favor from your boss by putting in time and effort. A parent's love is different than that. My love for Titus is not contingent on his obedience. Now, I require him to obey because I love him and because I want good things for him, not because I'm looking to get some sort of selfish profit from him. We are not in a contract with each other where he gets to negotiate his obedience for fruit snacks although he sometimes tries to do that. When I, when I reward his obedience, we're in the process of doing this right now, that when I give him something, then I make sure he knows that I'm giving it because I love to give him good things so that he knows that there is a blessing when he listens to mom and dad and that there are consequences to not listening to us. I want to make sure he knows that my favor is not earned. This morning we're looking at a set of psalms which speak to the sort of relationship that God has with humanity, both of the relationship he has with those who fear him and with those who do not. What we find in these psalms is that God's relationship with us is similar to the relationship that a parent has with their children. His favor isn't earned, it is given, it is granted as a matter of his grace. And similar to the way that I love, uh, love to reward Titus, so God loves to reward the obedience of his people with great blessing. In this life, there are many uncertainties. Things we take for granted, like our health, law and order, even the power staying on, as many found out in Milwaukee this week, all can be taken from us in an instance. Nothing is more valuable in this world than to know that we are kept under the protection of God. And that is precisely the hope which these psalms offer to those who take their refuge in Him. As one theologian comments, 
Whoever is persuaded that the care of God is exercised about the world and human affairs will at the same time unquestionably acknowledge that what is here laid down is the chief point of happiness. These songs are intended to build up our hope and our confidence in the loving regard that God has towards those who trust in Him. So let's begin this morning by reading these two psalms together. If you would, out of respect for God's word, please stand with me as I read from Psalms 128 and Psalm 129. This is the word of the Lord. A song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of, your, of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. A song of ascents. Greatly, have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed my back upon my back. They made their long they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetop, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, there are some amazing promises in these two songs. Promises which our skeptical, fallen human nature may struggle to believe could actually really be true. But they are true. And the point made by these two psalms is that God is pleased to bless and to keep those who take their refuge in Him. As a result, these songs are a call to us to trust God and to obey Him. So the main idea of these two songs and the main idea of, of our sermon this morning is simply this, that the Lord regards those who regard Him with favor and blessing. The Lord regards those who regard Him with favor and blessing. Now these psalms commend the faithfulness of God to His people and they lead us to three important conclusions which inform the way that we are called to live which are going to be our three main points this morning. And they, I will lay those out for you now. First, remember that the Lord is the source of every blessing in your life. Remember that the Lord is the source of every blessing. Second, remember that the Lord is the source of your comfort. The Lord is the source of our comfort. And finally, remember that the Lord is a righteous judge and the defender of his holiness. Remember that the Lord is a righteous judge and the defender of his holiness. Well, first let's look at how we are commended to understand and to remember that the Lord is the source of every blessing. What is the difference between the paycheck you receive from work and all the blessings that are in your life? What's the difference? Well, you earn a paycheck. 
You trade your time. You use your expertise. You earn money at a job. You deserve it. A blessing isn't something that you earn. It's something that is given to you. It's yours at the generosity of someone else. Psalm 128 is a meditation on the rich blessings that God delights to give us as a matter of the loving regard which he has for his people. As you read this psalm, you start to realize that every good thing in our life is a blessing from God, even the things which we might look at and say that we have earned. Now he starts out with this important pronouncement. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. This statement is one of the most important statements that's made in this psalm because it lays the foundation for everything else which he has to say. You see, what we realize in the way that the psalmist begins here is that not only is the fear of the Lord the occasion for receiving God's blessings, but that it is actually part of the blessing itself. The person who fears the Lord is blessed, not just because God pours out his kind benefits on them, but because he is the one who puts a heart in them in the first place, which is eager to regard him with the awe and the reverence and the affection that leads to right obedience. To fear God is to receive a blessing from him. Ever since Adam and Eve fell, humanity has not regarded God in the way we ought to. Romans 3 explains that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Ephesians 2 likewise explains that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the first and the greatest blessing which God has poured out on the world which he pours out on all who hope in him, is that he gives his people a heart which fears him. Without that work, none of these other blessings which the psalmist speaks of here would matter. Now before we get into those blessings, we have to ask, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We don't look at fear as a good thing normally. Well, the fear of the Lord is made up of two things. It's made up, first and foremost, of a right regard of who God is and as a right response to Him as our Creator and our King. Uh, Charles Spurgeon calls the fear of the Lord the essence of all true religion, the fear of reverence, of dread to offend, of anxiety to please, and of entire submission and obedience. Now, to fear God isn't so much to be afraid of Him but to behold him rightly and to respond to him appropriately with reverence and awe, to love him and to submit to him. The fear of the Lord is what moves his people to joyful obedience. It causes us to see sin for what it is. While it had such a form, while formerly when we were uh, apart from Christ, it had such an appeal for us, we now see it for the ugly thing that it is so that we hate it. 
It's something that comes as God transforms our hearts to love Him and to relate to Him the way that we were created to do in the first place. So when the psalmist says that everyone who fears the Lord is blessed, he's calling us to recognize that we are products of God's grace, that we owe everything we have, everything we are to His kindness, to His mercy, and to His love. Not one of us can boast that we have earned this from God. We can only be humbled by the fact that we, as sinners, don't deserve this favor. That we deserve death. That we deserve eternal punishment in hell. But God has not given us what we deserve. He has provided for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's because of His work that we can lay claim to these blessings and call ourselves God's beloved children. If this were the only way that God saw fit to bless us, it would be more than enough, wouldn't it? But as Paul says in Romans 8, 32, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, has also graciously provided for every need we have and more. In the rest of this song, the psalmist lays out three blessings which God pours out on his beloved people. The first blessing he draws our attention to is the blessing which God gives to his people as we work. It's the blessing he gives to us as we work. He says, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Now last week when we were reading Psalm 127, how we depend on God to add his blessing to our work in order for us to enjoy its benefits, we discovered that Hard work doesn't always lead to success. That you can have all the right tools, all the right motives, and accomplish the right right opportunities and still fall short. What it requires is that God is in the act, that he works, and he gives that blessing. In fact, based on what we see here from Psalm 128 verse 2, it stands that we must always give God credit that we get anything out of our hard work. He is the one who provides us with the strength and the energy to work. He is the one who provides us with the opportunity to work. And he is the one who ensures that we receive what we work for. When you get your paycheck at the end of the week, you have a reason to give God praise and thanks because he is the one who ensures that you receive the fruit of your labor. It is a gift of God's graciousness. Now that seems like something which God gives to everyone, to those who fear him and to those who don't. So we might be tempted to look at this and say, well, how is this different? How is this really a blessing that God pours out on his people? In many instances, it seems actually like the wicked seem to prosper in this life, while those who seek righteousness, who fear the Lord, face trials and hardships. As, Ma- as Jesus says in Matthew 5, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, that he sends rain on the just and the unjust. But as we look at this blessing, we see that there is something unique about this promise to those who fear God versus those who do not. Those who fear God may trust that he will sustain them no matter what. Psalm 1 makes this distinction for us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So those who 
do not fear the Lord may seem to prosper for a time, but in the end they receive the full wages of their sin, and death consumes them. Those who fear the Lord do not have to fear that, because they have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ. Now the second blessing that the psalmist says that God gives to those who fear him is a blessing for the home. A blessing for the home. Look at verse 3. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And once again, as we look at this, we see a connection between this psalm, this, this song, and what we read last week in Psalm 127. Here the psalmist speaks of how God blesses the homes of those who fear and obey Him. God's concern for His people extends to the home. He has structured it to be a place of blessing. Whether we're talking about the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife or the relationship of parents to their kids, God has intended those things to be a source of blessing. Proverbs 18 verse 22 says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And likewise, when we were in Psalm 127, we saw that children are a blessing from God, that they are an inheritance from God. As we read here about the way that God blesses the homes of those who fear him, we find a wife who is flourishing, who is productive, and we find that their children are growing, that they are bearing fruit as well. Because God blesses the labor of those who fear him, their, their families are provided for. Now we should not read this blessing and think that God will never let our families experience need or that our homes will never have any trouble Rather, this blessing which the psalmist says will come to those who fear the Lord is a promise that he will always provide for those needs according to his wisdom and his love. As David writes in Psalm 37, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Now the third blessing that the psalmist says comes to those who fear the Lord is the blessing of peace which comes from the presence of God. It's the blessing of peace which comes from the presence of God. In verses 5 and 6, the psalmist says, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, this blessing has shifted a little bit to have more of a corporate feel. But it ties into some of those individual blessings which he's already pronounced on those who fear the Lord. While the Lord blesses each of us individually according to his wisdom and his purpose, It's important to remember that in Christ, we are part of a greater body. As as Peter says, we are a holy nation under his dominion. Similar to what we read in Psalm 125 and 126, the psalmist here emphasizes Jerusalem and Mount Zion, and then he includes the blessing of God's people when he says, Peace be upon Israel. Now, prior to the fulfilling work of Christ, God's promises to bless were tied directly to Jerusalem and to Mount Zion, which is where God made his direct presence dwell in the midst of his people. In the old covenant of the law, 
the call was to come and to see and to worship God in his splendor. This is a foretaste of the greater promise which, has, which was to come, which came in Christ. In Christ, the peace of God has come to us. Salvation does not center anymore on an earthly temple. It stands on the work which Christ has accomplished as our great and high priest through the blood which he offered for us on the cross, thereby making peace for us through his death and resurrection. So our hope is not in an earthly city, but in a heavenly one where Christ is king. So this blessing and peace and prosperity has been elevated through the work of Jesus on the cross. And this gets at the greatest blessing which God has bestowed on us through Jesus. The gospel is not just about how God has rescued us from hell. It is not less than that, but it is more than that. Because it is also about how we have received the blessing, the inheritance of sonship through Jesus by faith in him. The ultimate blessing for those who fear God, who believe the gospel and trust in Christ for their salvation is the Lord himself who looks after us, who blesses the labor of our hands, who makes our families fruitful and who prospers us in the peace of his presence. So we must remember first and foremost that the Lord is the source of every blessing. He is also the source of all comfort. God promises to keep us and to sustain us and to bless the work of our hands. He gives us himself and has rescued us from our slavery to sin to live as his sons and daughters. Sometimes, though, the blessings which God gives to us come through times which try us. They come through times of suffering and affliction. So as we think about the glorious ways that God blesses his people, we must also remember how he keeps them in the midst of their suffering. Now, I've mentioned before how much I appreciate the Psalms, especially the Songs of Ascents, for the way that they account for the complexity of living in a fallen world. We see here in Psalm 129, uh, as, it, as it elevates our gaze from the trouble that surrounds us to see and to hope in the God who blesses and keeps his people, even in the midst of their suffering, who turns their suffering into their blessing. So we see this now as the psalm, as the psalmist uh, begins to speak about the, the state of Israel in Psalm 129. Uh, notice first and foremost that this psalm is spoken with the nation of Israel in view. And this is what he says in verse 1. Greatly or often have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So while Psalm 128 pronounces some great and amazing blessings for those who fear the Lord, we know from reading the Old Testament that Israel did not always fear the Lord as they were called to. Instead, they wandered from the peace of God's presence to serve other false gods. They desired to be like the nations around them. And so when they failed to honor God, the curse of the law fell on them. When they put God to the test, he disciplined them, allowing the nations around them to have their way with them. Now you get a sense of the pain of that discipline in these first verses. Twice the psalmist leads the nation saying, Greatly have they afflicted me 
for my youth. It's like as he says it, he has to stop and make sure Israel, that as he's addressing the nation, remembers this affliction so that they'll understand there are consequences for wandering from God. In verse 3, he uses the picture of a field that's being plowed and broken up to depict the way that Israel's enemies had treated them. He says, the plowers plowed upon my back, making long their, their furrows or their trenches. But just like a field has to be broken up, how it has to be plowed and tilled in order to be planted, the psalmist uses this time of suffering to draw attention to the way which God has showed regard for his people, even in the midst of their suffering. In verse 2, he says that though from his youth he has endured these afflictions, God has not allowed him to be overcome. The enemies of Israel, fierce and cruel as they were, were not allowed to prevail ultimately over God's people. Instead, once those enemies had served their purpose, God turned the tables on them. I was just reading this week uh, in Isaiah, uh, the book of Isaiah, and in chapter 10, how God speaks about the Assyrians and how he dealt with them. There he speaks of them as the rod of his anger, as a staff that he used in his fury to discipline the nations of Israel and Judah. And then he turns his attention back at the rod of his anger and he speaks about how he will break them like a stick across his knee for their arrogance and boastful wickedness. We see that reflected here in verse 4 where the psalmist speaks of God's righteousness, how he has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, we don't know who this psalmist is, or if he's talking, we don't know if he's talking about a time of suffering that he experienced personally, or whether he's just thinking about the history of Israel and how they suffered like this. In the end, we don't really have to know all those details to understand the point he's making, which is this. Despite all the ways God's people suffer living in a fallen world, God is righteous and he is faithful. Given what we see in Psalm 128, that God delights in blessing his people, we also come to an understanding here that God achieves some of those blessings by appointing times of affliction for us, which function ultimately for our good and for his glory. Psalmist says two things about God here. First, he leads us to hope in God in the midst of our suffering because he says that God is the sustainer of his people. Why is it that given all these enemy nations and how small the nation of Israel and Judah were, though these enemies seemed to have their way with God's people, how is it that they were unable in the end to prevail over them? Well, there's one answer. Because God was with them. That God was preserving them. Just as God says to the to the waters in creation. This far you shall come and no further. So God also appoints boundaries that preserve his people. We read that Satan is a roaring lion who prowls about seeking who he may devour. But there is a chain attached to his ankle which will not permit him to do anything without God's approval. We are told also by the psalmist or we're told in James to, to count it joy when we encounter various trials and sufferings. Not because God delights in our suffering, but because he uses those times to strengthen our faith and to produce steadfastness in us. His goodness and his grace and his power, these are not just theories. They are a reality to live by in the good times and in the bad times. 
And though our hearts may ache under the plow, God uses times of suffering and need and doubt and fear and weakness and, yes, even death to mold and to perfect his people into the image of Christ, who himself suffered on the cross. For those who fear the Lord, even times of affliction are times of joy, because we have the sure promise that God will keep us and sustain us to the end. Now the second thing the psalmist says about God is that he is the righteous deliverer of his people. It's important here that we see and we, we hear the, the psalmist declare that God is indeed righteous in this act. Although God promises to judge the wicked for the sake of his people and because of his great love, we see that he is patient towards them. That patience is not a detriment to his righteousness. It's actually part of it. Now, if you're familiar with, with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you'll know there's a creature named Gollum who is corrupted by the evil power of the One Ring. At one point, Frodo, who's the character who's been tasked with destroying that ring, remarks how it's a pity that his uncle Bilbo who had first encountered Gollum and by whom the ring had come into Frodo's possession hadn't killed Gollum when he had the chance. To which Gandalf, one of Frodo's companions, corrects him and says, Pity? It was pity that led him to spare Gollum's life. And then he says, My heart tells me that Gollum still has a role to play in all this. And so it is, we find, at the end of the story, that when the ring seems to have finally prevailed over Frodo, it is destroyed in a struggle between Gollum and Frodo over it. Just as Gollum had a role to play in the triumph of good over evil, so God has appointed a role for the wicked to play as he displays the power of his glory, of his righteousness, and of his grace. God has a point and a purpose for every life. As the psalmist transitions from remembering the afflictions of Israel, he announces in the midst of that pain the goodness of God's plan that he releases his people, cutting the cords of the wicked. What does this have to do with us? Well, it reminds us that even when wicked people seem to be triumphing, God has a plan for them. He is a righteous king. And he may appoint times of suffering for his people, which ultimately function for our good and for our blessing. And if we remember this, we will find strength to wait on him to deliver us. And we learn to trust that his ways truly are higher and that, that he is working in ways that we can only imagine. Now, the third thing that the psalmist leads us to understand and remember is to remember that the Lord is a righteous judge and the defender of his holiness. Psalm 129 shows us what comes on those who do not fear the Lord, but who remain in the wickedness of their sin. Now, as we look at Psalm 129, this is, this is sort of one, Psalm 128 turned inside out, isn't it? Whereas we saw the blessings that God pours out on those who fear him in Psalm 128, here we see the judgment which he pours out on those who don't. The psalmist pronounces five curses here, for those who, which come on those who do not regard God rightly. And we want to look at each one of those now. First, we see that whatever power, whatever authority these people seem to have, 
which they use to oppress others, which they use to serve their own ends, God cuts off. These images in verses 1 through 4 are the images of oppression and slavery. It's reminiscent of the way that God rescued Israel from their slavery slavery in Egypt. And so speaking of God's righteousness in verse 4, the psalmist celebrates God's work of liberation. He says that God cuts the cords of the oppression of his people. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells his disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So whatever authority people may have, whatever power, strength, ability, talents, or insights they possess, if they do not fear the Lord, it will do them no good in the end. What they relied on as strength in the beginning, they will find is weakness in the end. A stone that drags them down into the depths of God's anger. The Lord will take those things from them, and they will experience his righteous judgment. The second curse that the psalmist says that God will put on those who do not fear him or love him is shame. Zion represents the place where where God dwells. Those who love God are going to love naturally the place of his dwelling, meaning they're going to love Zion. On the other hand, in verse 5, the psalmist says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Now we're told by Moses that when the Lord came to meet with Israel on the slopes of Mount Sinai and he spoke the Ten Commandments to them, that the people were afraid, that they stood far off and they said to Moses, you you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. As it is every time we read in the Bible about how people came into contact with even the veiled expression of God's holiness, they fell on their faces and they said, Woe is me. Even the shadow of God's holiness puts wickedness to shame. The light of his glory is unbearable to the eyes of a sinner. One day the world we live in will be confronted with all of its corruption by the undeniable glory of the holiness of God And many who thought that there would not be any consequence for their sin, that they had gotten away with it, will see that they were dreadfully wrong. This is a curse which can only be removed by the blood of Christ, which is able to make us clean, so that we may behold the beauty of Christ with unveiled faces. For in that day, the promise that is given to all who believe is that we will be like Him having been joined to Christ by faith. The third curse that we read here, which the psalmist announces for those who do not fear the Lord, is that they will not endure. They will not endure. Kings, rulers, presidents, mayors, they have all erected things, statues and monuments, which are supposed to remember them when they are gone. But those things are easily torn apart. In verse 6, the psalmist says, Let them be like grass on the housetop, which withers before it grows up. Now, what you need to know about this, because this is kind of a weird concept of grasping on a house. Houses in this area of the world uh, typically had flat roofs, which were thatched. So it wasn't abnormal to have grass growing on your roof, because you use grass for your roofing. 
but grass that managed to grow on that roof would likely have been exposed directly to the blazing heat of the sun so that it would wither and die quickly the way that if you pulled a plant out of the ground and throw it on the sidewalk. Those who do fear the Lord, or sorry, those who don't fear the Lord may seem to enjoy initial prosperity. They may grow quickly like grass seed that you throw out in the sun and it just straight up. But we find that when troubling times come, they do not have the strength to endure, but will fade away as soon as they have sprung up. The fourth curse that we read here, similar to the third, is that those who do not fear the Lord will not produce fruit. They don't produce fruit. Again, contrasting uh, the blessing of Psalm 128, the psalmist says that these people will be like wheat that shoots up and dies before the reaper has a chance to get anything from them. They may enjoy temporary success, but we find that in the end they don't produce anything that matters. And the reason this is is because they've estranged themselves from the Lord. They're like a branch that has been cut off of a tree and just waiting to, to shrivel up and to grow dry. It is possible for people who do not love God to do good deeds. But in the end, we find that those things are unfruitful. They will not endure, and they are not a pleasing or acceptable in God's sight because they are done from a heart that is corrupt, a heart that does not love Him or honor Him as it should. As the saying goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And the fifth and final curse that the psalmist pronounces here on those who do not fear the Lord is that they forfeit the benefits of his blessing. They forfeit the benefits of his blessing. In verse 8, he says that those who pass by them do not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. In Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other which means that you cannot enjoy the blessings of God without the fear and the love of God this reality is lost on many they expect to receive God's acceptance they think that God owes them his love because in their own eyes they're a good person but they do not love God they do not fear God and they do not honor him with their whole heart The only way for any man or any woman to enjoy God's blessing is to repent of their sins and to believe the gospel. Because apart from faith in Christ, not one of us has any claim on the blessings of God's favor. This saying in verse 8 was a way that people would have greeted each other as they were harvesting their fields, as they passed by each other. But we see that, as the psalmist says, those who do not fear God, but rather remain his enemies, do not receive such a blessing. Why? Because all that can be done for them is to mourn, because they would not listen to the blessing and the grace that God freely bestows on all who fear and trust in him. Now, I really debated about whether or not to go on to Psalm 130, because it's hard to end on a negative, right? These curses are unsettling. They are. No one wants to be in this category. As unsettling as they are, they don't have to be that way. Because we see in the gospel that God has made a sure way for sinners like you and for me to be saved. Today is the day of salvation, we are told. Today is the day of transformation. Today is the day of God's patience. 
So, if as you search your heart this morning, you realize that you have not trusted in Christ, and in Christ alone to save you, and you've realized that the affections of your heart, that is what moves you and motivates you, is something else, then don't wait. Come to Christ. Trust that He died to set you free. Believe the gospel and live and receive the blessings of God. If you're here and you are a Christian, I urge you, heed the word of the psalmist. Wicked men always seem to flourish for a time, but in the end, they come to disaster. What comes to my mind is Psalm 73, as Asaph speaks as the leader of the nation of Israel, the man who was leading everyone, the nation, to sing. And he saw how the wicked were flourishing, and he says to himself, I have kept my hands clean in vain. What am I doing? And then he sees the end of the wicked. So may, in like fashion, may God teach us to see the end of the wicked as we consider these five curses. So that as we do, we will cling all the more to Christ and our hearts will exalt Him for the grace that He has given us and that we'll be motivated all the more to share the life-transforming good news of salvation with others before it's too late. God has great regard for His people. I hope you have seen that this morning. Each and every day, He pours out blessing upon blessing. Every good and perfect thing in our lives is a gift from His fatherly heart to us. Because of His perfect love, we, He keeps His people and He sustains them. And we see that He sustains them even in the midst of their deepest suffering. That He uses that to shape and to hone them into dis- beautiful displays of His grace. But at the same time, be warned. Because God is not mocked. He is a righteous judge He defends the glory of His name. He enforces justice. So let us remember that God is the God who provides, that He is the God who sustains, and that He is the God who judges in all righteousness. All praise be to Him. Let's pray together. Our great God and our great King, we stand amazed as we consider even the many blessings we have received up until this moment. How you provided for our daily food. How you provided for clothes for us to wear. How you provided for us a room to be together, to hear from your word. Father, we ask that your spirit would work in us to apply these words to us. Help us to take this warning so that we do not look at the way that wicked men seem to flourish and think to ourselves, I'm wasting my time. But rather that we would be able to see the sufficiency in the sufficiency of your word, what becomes of them who do not invest in you, but rather invest in themselves. I pray, Father, that you would also give us strength to endure because we know we live in a world where suffering is a reality. And I pray that you would give us the strength and the faith to, when we ourselves are suffering, to know that you are accomplishing your very great purposes for us. And finally, Father, this morning, fill our hearts with joy as we consider how the hand of your providence meets our every need and pours out every blessing that is in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.